are great. You made us, and it is in you that we live and move and have our being. Lord, everything that we have, every blessing, every resource, every talent, every gift, all everything we have comes from you. And it's to be used for your glory. Lord, we thank you that you give us so much to enjoy in this life, but you also give us responsibility. And we thank you, Lord, that in the midst of the responsibilities that you give us, you give us the privilege of knowing you. So the things that we do, the things we invest our lives in, can be invested with eternal meaning and eternal significance. Now, Lord, as we open the scripture, I pray that you will give us a fresh, deeper understanding of, of who you've called us to be, how you've called us to live, how you've called us to operate in the midst of our relationships, in the midst of our work, our jobs, our, all the different responsibilities and things that we do, Lord. May we do them all for the praise of your glory. And I pray that you will work to that end in our lives as a result of our time together this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start off this morning by sharing with you a sobering reality. The reality is that through the course of your life, you will invest more of your time working than doing anything else besides sleeping. Now, work takes on different forms in different people's lives. For instance, for many people, especially adults, their work comes in the form of a job. Now, if you are an average American, I know average just kind of globs everyone together and, and works it kind of out that way. But if you are an average American, through the course of your lifetime, you will work in your job for about 90,000 hours. I mean, that's a sobering reality, isn't it? You will invest 90,000 hours in your job. But we all know that work does not end when we come home from a job. Work continues. You have to mow the yard. You have to go shopping. You have to make meals. You have to care for the kids. You have to clean the house. You have to do repairs around the house. Work does not stop when you come home. And this adds to the course of your life tens if not hundreds of thousands of additional hours working with your home and in your, with your family. On top of this, you think about students, you think about children and teens and college students, if that is you, you have work to do as well. Now your primary work, if you're a student, is not a job, although you may have a job. Your primary work as a student is in your classes, in your schoolwork. And by the time a student graduates from high school, they will have been in class for about 15,000 hours. I mean, th these numbers are just mind-boggling, aren't they? 15,000 hours going to school by the time you graduate from high school. And that's not counting homework and other projects and stuff you do outside of the school time. And I think about volunteering as well. Volunteering is another form of work. And if you volunteer just a few hours a week, like at church or in the community, through the course of your lifetime, that itself will add up to at least 10,000 hours of additional work through volunteering. And this is all mind-boggling when you really think about it. So much work that we invest our lives in in so many different ways. And unfortunately, when people think of work, especially when they think of their job or when they think of school, it is not something they look at with pleasure or with joy, but they see their job or they see school just as a necessary evil. That through the course of each day, they are excited and counting down the hours till they get to go home. And through the course of each week, they are looking ahead to the weekend, hoping that weekend comes soon. And then the weekend comes, and they're dreading going back to work on Monday morning. And as the years pile up in their work life, they are excited about when they get to retire. 
And I think about this. I think about the fact that we are investing hundreds of thousands of hours in our various form of work. And I think, what a sad perspective if we are dreading the work that we do. If we're wishing that time away. It's such a sad perspective. Yet that's what so many people experience. We all experience that in various ways, some more than others. But God has a very different perspective for us and how we engage in our work. And today we're going to be looking at God's perspective on our work, whether it's our work at our job or at school or our work volunteering or at home. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in the city of Ephesus. And the section of Ephesians that we are in right now is known as a household code. Back in the ancient um, Roman Empire, philosophers and religious teachers oftentimes wrote what were called household codes, which described how people should operate in their relationships with those who are closest to them. And household codes back in that culture typically talked about three different types of relationships. It talked about the, the husband-wife relationship, it talked about the parent-child relationship, and it talked about the master-slave relationship. Now here in the book of Ephesians, as Paul is talking about this household code, he is, is following the same basic listing of those three categories, but we see that Jesus transforms the way that these relationships play out. Now today we're talking about the relationship between masters and slaves, or at least that's what Paul is talking about in our passage. And I want to be careful that we don't get hung up on this topic of slavery. Because we could spend our entire time together just talking about, okay, what was the biblical perspective of slavery? I mean, how did that all play out? I mean, I, I can say I'm very thankful. I think we can all be thankful that slavery here in America has been abolished. And, and I, I think it's also important to recognize there are significant differences between the slavery that took place in America in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, compared to the slavery that took place in the Roman Empire, especially by the time of the first century. There were some significant differences there. But as we come to this passage today, I don't want to get caught up in this topic of slavery, because Paul's intent was not to offer some official stance on the institution of slavery here in this passage. His intent in this passage was to describe how Jesus changes the way that slaves and masters might relate to one another. But today, again, we're not talking about slaves, even though Paul's talking about slave, slaves and masters. I want to apply this passage especially to our work, our work in our jobs and at home, at school, and in volunteering. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. The Apostle Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with the good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same thing to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now the main theme I want to pull out from this passage for us today is that we are called to work as if we are working for Jesus. Work as if we're working for Jesus. Note how prevalent Jesus is in this passage. For instance, verse 5, it says that we should work with a sincere heart as you would for Christ. 
Verse 6, it says that we should work as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, it says that we should work with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. And so we see that Jesus is a big focus here in this passage. So the question is, if we are to work as working for Jesus, what does that mean? How does that look in our day-to-day lives? Well, one aspect that Paul points out here is that working as if we are working for Jesus means that we will demonstrate respect toward those you work for. You will demonstrate respect toward those you work for. Verse 5 says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now this phrase fear and trembling typically in the Bible is used of how people uh, relate to God. And it's not talking about being scared before God. It's not talking about shaking your boots before God. It's talking about coming before God with a deep reverence. And applying that to how we operate in our jobs or in our work situations, it's the idea of respect. That we are to demonstrate respect toward those you work for. So if you work for someone, you should show them respect. Why? It says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Paul is saying that we should treat our boss with the same respect that we would show toward Jesus. Work as if you're working for Jesus. Now maybe your work environment is one in which you don't really care much for your boss. Maybe your boss is just a jerk. Maybe you don't trust your boss. Maybe you feel like your boss makes poor decisions. Maybe you just don't like your boss personally. But you still have a choice of how you're going to treat your boss. You still have a choice to make in which you can, no matter what your view is of your boss, that you can choose to treat him or her with respect, with kindness, and with Christ-likeness. Respect means, for instance, that you're not constantly complaining about him or her behind their back. Respect means that you speak to them with sincerity and kindness rather than with snarkiness or or sarcasm. Respect means that you aren't disobeying them unless they are telling you to do something that is immoral or unethical. Respect means that if you're upset with them, you address it with them in private rather than voicing it in public for everyone to hear. I know that there are workplaces out there that are toxic and that for some people the best thing they can do is to leave and go to a different workplace. I think it's important to understand that if we are to apply this passage to our lives, that whatever workplace we find ourselves in, for as long as we are there, the call from God is to demonstrate respect for those who lead us. Now coming back to this passage, verse 5 says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, so this points to another aspect of how we are to, to work as if working for Jesus, and that is to work wholeheartedly. Paul says to work with a sincere heart. This word for sincere literally means singleness, as in singleness of heart. Singleness of heart means that your motives and your attitudes line up with your words and actions. That there is not a duplicity where you're thinking one thing and doing something else, or where you're one way in one situation, or in a different way in a different situation. It means that there is integrity and sincerity in your work, and in your attitude, in your words and actions. 
And here in verse 6, Paul gives a couple of really uh, interesting phrases to describe what happens when a person does not have singleness or sincerity of heart. He says, you should not work uh, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And I love those two phrases, eye service and people pleasers. I mean, they're such fascinating phrases. I mean, eye service, it's exactly how it sounds, that you are trying to serve someone else's eyes, that you're trying to look good in their eyes. You're trying to impress them by what you're doing. But your focus in that case is not um, on, on working with integrity of heart. You're focused on, you know what, how can I look good in their eyes? How, how can I perform in a way that they appreciate and that they notice? You're giving eye service. I mean, it's such a, a fascinating uh, concept. But what happens if our focus is on giving eye service and being a people pleaser is that when we feel like people are watching us, whether it's uh, a boss or a teacher or a coach, then we will work harder. We'll try to do better when we feel like someone is watching us. But when we don't feel like anyone's watching us, then our tendency is to slack off. And this is duplicity. It reminds me of a cartoon that says it's a boss and an employee. And the boss says, why aren't you working? And the employee says, I didn't see you coming. And I think, you know what? Most employees would not be that honest to say, well, I didn't see you coming. That's why I'm not working hard. But the reality is, if you've worked anywhere, you've probably seen that dynamic at play. That when the boss is around, oh, everyone's working nice and hard. But when the boss isn't around, you know, people begin to slack off. They begin to surf the Internet. They, they talk more with each other about non-work-related things, stuff like that. But then the boss comes back and, oh, need to start working. You know, it's a natural human instinct. We've all probably done that in some capacity at some point because the natural human instinct is um, just to work harder when we recognize that eyes are on us. But Paul says that we should not work with an eye towards eye service or people-pleasing. Instead, God calls us to a higher standard, recognizing that ultimately our boss is not our supervisor, and it's not our teacher, and it's not our coach. Our ultimate boss, Paul says, is Jesus. Look with me to verses 6 and 7. It says that we should serve with a sincere heart as you would for Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with the good will as to the Lord, and not for men. So we are to work as if we are working for Jesus. He is the one who is our ultimate boss in our work. Reality is all of us live with an eye towards some sort of audience. All of us um, are considering, okay, what will so-and-so think of what I am doing? How will, they, how will they respond? The question is, who is our audience? And as humans, it's so easy to focus on the audience of the people around us. And I think especially in today's culture, social media has given us avenues for, for being seen and, and for putting our best self forward, you know, doing this eye service thing, people-pleasing thing. We, we have more opportunities to do, do it today than ever before. But one of the things we have to recognize is that if we are focused on looking good in the eyes of other people, if we are focused on pleasing other people, it's going to create in us a deep insecurity. Where we're constantly wondering, okay, what are they thinking about me? Am I living up to their standards for me? Do they have a good impression of me or do I need to work harder when they see me? What self am I projecting to the world around me? It creates an insecurity in us. 
And then oftentimes we mask the insecurity just by working harder when they're around, trying to be more of a people pleaser, more of an eye service to other people. And on top of that, we oftentimes mask insecurity with a critical spirit. And we become critical, not just of ourselves, but of others, because we feel like if, if we can tear others down a little bit, it kind of builds us up. It's a, it's a sick way of thinking. But that's what happens when we are focused on, on people pleasing, on the opinion of others that breathes in us insecurity. It's so freeing when we are able to focus only on Jesus. Focus on his opinion of us. Focus on him. Of, you know what, Jesus, you are my boss. You're the one whose opinion matters. And I already know that you love me with a love that can never be taken away. That Jesus, your opinion of me does not change whether I fail or whether I succeed. You love me regardless. And that can give us a foundation for our lives so that we don't have to worry about, are we pleasing other people? Are we living up to their standards? But we have to understand, if we understand this passage and the concepts within this passage, we have to understand that that this is not a license just to slack off. Instead, if we are working for Jesus and we are really loving him and worshiping him, we will work wholeheartedly. We will not be inclined to cut corners or to to take the easy way out or to do the minimal required. Instead, we will work with all of our hearts. I want you to think for a minute about whoever it is who is your boss uh, at work, a supervisor, maybe a teacher or a coach, or even your classmates, your coworkers. Think about the reality that that for, for the most part, they probably do not see you here this morning worshiping God here in a worship service. They may not see the fact that you go to a small group of Bible study during the week or that you go to youth group during the week. What they see of you is what you're living out at work or at school or on the athletic team. That is what they see of you. And the question is, how are you representing Jesus there? Because, because the way, if you are slacking off, if you're taking the easy way out, if you're kind of lazy, that, how does that reflect on Jesus? Not very well. But if we are living with Jesus as our boss, living to work wholeheartedly, not as for people, but as for him, then that reflects very well on him. It, there should be a congruence between our worship here on Sunday mornings and how we live on Monday through Friday or whenever it is that we work at school, or at our job, or in our volunteering, or whatever. Now this passage is focusing on how we work when we are working for other people. But this passage also addresses those who are in supervisory or leadership roles. Look with me to verse 9. Paul says, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So it says, Masters, do the same to them. So we saw that, that those who are employees, those who, who serve someone else, are to do so with respect and with wholeheartedness. And the converse is true that those who are in leadership, those who are supervising, should work with respect and wholeheartedness as well. We see leaders treat your employees with wholehearted goodwill. I know goodwill is not a word we use that much in this context, but, but I think it captures well. You know what? Seek their good. Try to benefit them. Be as generous as you can for their good and for their benefit. You have to remember this passage, all this whole household code here in Ephesians, is shaped by Ephesians 5.21 at the head of this passage. It says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Yes, there still are distinctions in roles and responsibilities between people. But even amidst those distinctions, like between supervisor and employee or something like that, teacher and student, even amidst those distinctions in the kingdom of God, there is still to be respect, a care, a love, and a goodwill that those who lead are demonstrating toward those who follow them. Because in the kingdom of God, Jesus demonstrated and taught that leadership is not about getting notoriety and getting a lot of benefits and privileges for yourself. Leadership is about serving with humility and generosity those who are following. That is what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. Now Paul says here to those who lead, do not threaten them. Now that certainly makes sense in a slavery context, but it also makes sense in any sort of leadership context. There is still, still room, still appropriateness for a leader or a supervisor or a teacher to offer a reprimand at times. Or to point out there are consequences for poor behavior or poor performance. Or at times, those who are leaders still may need to fire employees. But this idea of not threatening them means don't lord your authority over them. Don't, 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 don't lead out of a spirit of fear and intimidation. Instead, lead with love, with straightforwardness, with humility. Don't threaten them, it says. Why? Because, because of who the ultimate boss is. Even if you are a pastor, if you are the CEO or the founder of a company, you are not the ultimate boss. Jesus is. That's why it says that we should know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Jesus is looking for everyone, regardless of your role in your work, to look to him as the boss, to serve him ultimately. And so I want to come back to this question of why should we work as if we are working for Jesus? And there are many different ways we could answer that question, but I think the ultimate reason why we should work as if we're working for Jesus is because you are working for Jesus. Whether you recognize it or not, everyone ultimately is accountable to him. This is the underlying message in the entire passage. It's especially clear in verse 8, saying that, that we should work as working for the Lord and not for men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. This is the idea of compensation. I mean, if you work at a job, your compensation is typically a paycheck. But it says here that if you recognize that you're working for the Lord and not for human masters, he will compensate you. And so ultimately in our jobs, if we are looking to Jesus as our boss, we will understand we are looking for compensation from him. And frequently that's something that happens in heaven, but it can also be something, just a sense of meaning and significance and joy that happens here on this earth as well. We get to invest in eternity as we work for Jesus, no matter what type of job we have. And this perspective of working for Jesus can really transform all the different type of work that we do. I think back to when I was in seminary. I worked for four different summers at a landscape supply company. And it was really a very good job. I want to just kind of set some context for this. This landscape supply company I worked at, it's not just like a little nursery that sells a few plants here and there. This is a large company. We sold about a million dollars per week of landscape products. So there's a lot of product moving in and out all the time. A lot of busyness, a lot going on there. And it was really a great job for me in the summers. 
I, I had a great boss. He was a, a solid Christian. He lived out his faith at work. It was, a, it was really a good work environment. But I will say that job, it, each summer, it just wore me down. And a lot of it had to do with just, um, I mean, it was manual labor, but it was also just the long hours because I would leave home most mornings at 5.15 a.m. And I wouldn't get back home until 6.30 that night. And part of that was just the commute in Chicago. Um, but a big part of that was I had 11 hours of work each day, five days a week. It was on my feet. Where most of those days, I did not sit for 11 hours straight. I was on my feet. I mean, the nature of my work was that I didn't typically take any breaks, even lunch. I would be standing while I ate lunch in about five minutes. And I know that there are people who have jobs that are even harder or more uh, taxing than that. But for me, I mean, part of the taxing nature of this role was just there were long hours that, that wore me down physically. And on top of this, there were significant parts of my job that were kind of boring. They were monotonous and repetitive. And, and that's not a great way to inspire joy in work either. And so what I found was that over the course of those first weeks of working there, that first summer, that my attitude was not great. I mean, I was thankful for the job, but I will also say that, that it was hard to really find joy in the work that I was doing. But what transformed my perspective there was I remembered Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. That, that's a passage that parallels this passage here in Ephesians. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men, because you know that you will receive a reward from the Lord as your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And I thought about that passage. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, work at it wholeheartedly as working for the Lord and not for men. And this was the perspective that transformed my, the, my attitude in that job. I, I would oftentimes leave a little bit earlier than I needed to so I could sit in my car try to beat some rush hour traffic, but then also sit in my car in the parking lot before work started just to pray, read some scripture. And, and one of the practices I started was in my prayer journal. Each day before I got out of that car, I'd write out Colossians 3, 23 and 24 just to remind me of what my focus should be for that day. And then through the course of the day, I would recite that verse in my mind. Whatever you do, work out with all your heart is working for the Lord, not for men. It's Lord Christ you are serving. It's amazing how that brought a new sense of meaning and joy in my life. Even as I'm doing this monotonous work, even as I'm doing things that other people may not see, I know that Jesus is right there. That Jesus sees that stuff. And that I can talk with him. I can have this conversation with him all throughout the course of the whole day. And it didn't mean that I got less tired through the course of the day, but it meant that I had a significantly better attitude in that day. Because I recognized, you know what? I have a good boss here at this landscape company. But I have a better boss in Jesus who is always here with me. Now this passage which is calling us to work wholeheartedly is not calling us to be a workaholic. I think that's important to understand because in our culture it's so easy to just make, make our work our God. That is idolatry. We are not to seek our ultimate sense of identity and meaning from our work. We should not worship our work. Instead, we should worship God through our work. Our work should be a context of how we worship God. We sang earlier today that we are made to worship. And we really are. Worship means to attribute worth to something. And when we work as if we are working for Jesus, 
it attributes worth to Jesus. It's a form of worship. There's a continuity between our worship here on Sunday morning and, and how we worship God through our work on the rest of the week. There should not be a, a disjunction between the sacred and secular in our lives, but that instead all of life can be a context for worshiping God. Worship can even take place in our workplace. I think of Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, we, we obviously know him as a reformer, but he was also a pastor. And he said that if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. I think, you know what, that's a great picture of whatever we're doing. Do it with wholehearted devotion. It's doing it for Jesus and not just for humans. Because for a Christian, no job, no schoolwork, no volunteer role, no, role, no responsibility at home is merely work. It is a context for worshiping God. I think of Howard Hendricks. He was a seminary professor for a long time. He tells a story about how he was on an airplane and all the passengers were, were on the plane, but there was a significant delay. And you know what happens when people in an airport or airplane are delayed? They get kind of frustrated. They get kind of testy. And that's what was happening on this plane. And start, some of the passengers in their frustration were starting to take out that frustration on the flight attendants. Now, Howard Hendricks noticed this one particular flight attendant who was incredibly poised and gracious as she interacted with the passengers. And after the flight finally took off and got up into the air and, and that flight attendant had a moment, Howard Hendricks called her over and just commended her for how she handled the situation so well, how well, how graciously she, she treated the passengers, even in their frustration. And he asked for her name because he wanted to be able to write a letter of commendation to the airline for how well she was doing in her work. And here's how she responded. She said, I don't work for the airline. I work for Jesus Christ. And this morning before I left for work, my husband and I prayed that I would be able to serve Christ in my job. She used her job to serve Jesus. Similarly, I think of Stuart Briscoe, longtime pastor of Elmbrook Church down in Brookfield. Stuart Briscoe tells of a time that he once asked a young woman, what do you do? Meaning, what, what do you do for your job? What type of work do you do? And she replied, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, very skillfully disguised as a machine operator. And I think that's how we should view ourselves. We are followers of Jesus. We are missionaries for Jesus in the disguise of whatever type of job, whatever type of role we have in life. We are serving Jesus in that context. So Jesus is our boss. Whether we are working in a job or whether we are doing a homework, whether we are serving in the nursery, whether we are washing dishes, whether we are helping our neighbor rake leaves, that we are to do everything we do as if we are doing it for Jesus. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. as working for the Lord and not for men, because you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are here with us. And that everywhere we go, even when we start work again next, whether it's tomorrow morning or whenever it is, Lord, we thank you that you are there with us. 
Lord, we recognize, as we have seen this morning in this passage, that you are the boss. You are a good boss, though. You are the one who gives our life meaning and purpose. And Lord, I pray that we will approach our work, whatever context that work comes in, whether at school or at a job, at home, at church, wherever that work is, Lord. Lord, I pray that you will, will empower us to engage in that work as a worship offering. Not worshiping the work itself, but worshiping you through our attitude, our actions, our, our, our behaviors, our, our, our words as we engage in that work. Lord, in everything we do, may we do it for your glory and for your praise. And so, Lord, even this week, as we engage in things that may be less than desirable, things that are challenging for us, things that just are rubbing us the wrong way, pray that your Holy Spirit will remind us to submit that situation to you. That your Holy Spirit will empower us to, to seek joy in that situation and to think, how can I use this situation to honor Jesus? And Lord, in the midst of, of that process, in the coming days, weeks, months, and years, I pray that we will grow in living our lives as worship offering in everything that we do, including in our work, and that we will represent you faithfully and find joy in you as we engage in all the different aspects of life that you're calling us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.